Amen. Hey, well, good morning. Uh, welcome to the first Sunday of 2024. That's weird to say. Um, hey, if you do me a favor, go ahead and have a seat this morning. Um, I'm going to do something a little bit different than we normally do. If you're new with us, this is usually the time that I would I'd pray for us, and then I'd have you guys open up your Bibles to the text that we're going to preach. Um, but with it being a new year, uh, I have some kind of new information or some new updates uh, regarding the life of our church that I thought it'd be good to, to kind of make you all aware of, okay? So I got three things I'm going to share with you. All right, the first is if you remember on December the 10th, um, our elders stood up here and presented to you the Grout family, okay? So Nathan, Donna, kids, if you don't mind, come on on up here. Um, so we presented them to you as, as a potential elder candidate for our church, um, and we've been considering Nathan um, really for about six months now. And this morning, I want to inform you that um, all we have received from our church body is glowing affirmations for Nathan as a leader and as a shepherd for our church. So today, I want to officially confirm him as an elder here in our church. So go ahead and, and welcome him with us. Um, yeah, so Nathan and Donna, thank you all for engaging such a thorough and lengthy process with such grace and humility. Um, we love you all. Uh, thank you for the way that you have loved our church, served our church. Grateful uh, that you're going to be able to shepherd our church. So I'm going to pray for them, and then uh, we'll go into announcements number two. So let me pray. I'm actually going to read the qualifications of an elder as I pray. This is from Philipp, I mean, uh, first, first Timothy. You see where I'm going? First Timothy chapter three. It says, this saying is trustworthy. If anybody aspires to the office of an elder, he desires a noble task. But an elder must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, for if anybody does not know how to lead or manage his own household, how will he be able to care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with arrogance and conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders. They may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. Father, we're so grateful for this family. Um, thank you for the way that you have molded and led and um, developed uh, Nathan and Donna and the kids over the last several decades. Thankful for the way that they have said yes to you, to let you reveal their sin, to let you reveal their issues, to let them reveal where you need, where they need your grace, your mercy, your love, your sustenance, your sufficiency, all that it is that you pr promise to provide. Thank you for they've responded. Uh, not perfectly, nobody has, but they've responded. Lord, I'm grateful, grateful for this family, grateful for the way they've prayed for us, the way that they've served us, and I'm looking forward to the way that you use them in the shepherding and the leadership of this church. Lord, I pray for wisdom for Nathan. Um, also pray for protection, knowing that uh, attack of the leadership of the church is a real thing. We pray against that, that you would protect them and guard them as they lead us into 2024. And we thank you, thank you for this in Jesus' name, amen. Awesome. Thank you all. Yep. All right. Almost got choked up. That's a good way to start 2024. All right. So that's, that's our first announcement. All right. The second big update that I have in, in regarding the life of our church regards our space. Okay. So let me give you an update on our space. No, we don't have a building. No, we don't have land. Okay. Don't email me. All right. But this is what we're going to do. Um, if you're new with us, maybe you've been here a couple Sundays, you're well aware that we're in need of some space. Um, Especially this section is aware that we need some space because right over this dividing wall, we have a lot of little, little children, okay? But I want to pull back the veil a little bit and kind of show you why we need some space. So uh, I have a couple of slides, okay? So the first one is this. 
just want you to see this, this statistic. There was a, um, a, a survey run by a massive consulting group about churches, and, and all I'm going to explain here is that in American congregations, the average attendance in church is comprised of about 21% children, okay? So for every five people in a church, one of those is going to be a child. Across America, on average, 21% kids, kids being fifth grade and younger, 12 and younger, okay? To be in the top 10% across American churches, you would be about a third, right? 32% to be in the top 10, 32%. So one out of every three that go to a church would be a child. Any guesses as to where we sit here at CBC Richmond Hill? All right, let me just go ahead and tell you, okay? We're going to be at 41%, right? On average, y'all, kid you not, a lot of Sundays, we're 48, 49, 50%. Um, on any given Sunday here in the life of our church, we have 130 to 160 kids uh, 12 years old and younger. Yeah, can we, can we praise God for that? And, and, and listen, I, I, want us, I want us to praise God for that because I so long for us to be a church body that puts a dent into the progressing kingdom of darkness in America and, and I've said this since the day that we've launched, may we be a church that doesn't whine and moan and complain about the darkness of our time, instead be a church that lights a candle, right? Can we just be that type of church? And I think the best way truly to push back a little bit of darkness in America is to invest into the heart of a child with the kingdom and the gospel of our God, okay? Every Sunday, we have 130 to 160 kids where we have the opportunity to invest in and light a candle one heart at a time. It's a real unique opportunity. However, it provides massive logistic issues, okay? One of those is our space. One of those Coleman mentioned is our service. With it being a one to, I mean, a 50% ratio, like we, we, you've got to serve. We need our people to serve, and I'll share more about that in a minute. But let me, let me kind of update you on our space, okay? All of these changes I'm about to talk about are going to go into effect in February. Just wanted to make sure I give you a plenty of heads, heads up. Details are coming in the following weeks. What you're going to have today is just a 30,000-foot picture, okay? First change we're going to make is to this space, okay? We're going to open up our sanctuary. So this right here is a dividing wall. So if you were with us on Christmas Eve, you know exactly what this looks like, okay? For Christmas Eve, we opened it up. So we're going to open up that wall, which will give us a little bit more space. I know you love each other. I know you love sitting this close with one another, okay? But opening up is going to give us a little bit more space. We're also going to try to maximize this beautiful building that God has graciously provided us. And the, and the best way to do that is to use the dining room a little bit more for kids. We're going to add some more kids' classrooms by using the dining room. And then the city of Richmond Hill has, has graciously allowed us to fold the wetlands building. If you're like, I don't know what that is. It's the building in our parking lot. They're going to fold that into our lease beginning this year. So we're going to be able to maximize that space for our kids as well. Okay, so lots of logistics to figure out. We've got a lot of leadership and, and a lot of teams that are ready to make that happen. But I wanted you to know that those changes are going to go into effect in February. A lot of details will be coming out this month. Okay, so that's the second big happening. Everybody good? Great. I'm not taking questions. All right. The third big change in the life of our church is that in 2024, we are starting a brand new series in the book of Philippians. Okay. So if you have your Bible, I want you to go ahead and turn with me to the book of Philippians. If you're new, I'm going to give you plenty of time to find that. If, if you're new with us, my name is Andrew McClure. I'm the lead pastor here at CBC Richmond Hill. And, and here at our church, we really do have a desire to see you fall deeper and deeper in love with Jesus. Just all cards on the table. Like, I want you to fall deeper and deeper in love with Jesus. And I want your love with Jesus to be evidenced in your deeper and deeper obedience to Jesus. Did you hear that? 
Because that's what Jesus says. Jesus says, if you love me, then you will obey me. That our obedience is evidence of our deep affection and love for Jesus. And there are two specific ways that we as a church want to facilitate a deeper relationship with Christ. The first is through community. We're community Bible church. You probably see where I'm going with number two, okay? The first is through community. Y'all, we want to invite you into the community of this church. I don't want you to be anonymous. Church is not intended to be something that you consume. Did you hear that? Church is not intended for something for you to consume. We're not to view church the way that we view Home Depot versus Lowe's, Zaxby's versus Chick-fil-A, which is really no competition. I'm here at Westbrook, okay? Or Target versus Walmart, okay? This is not the way we're supposed to view church. We don't view it to meet our personal preferences or something that we come in to consume. Church is a community of people. That's why I love that we don't have a building. We don't get to make that mistake to, to, to substitute what a church is for a building space. You know, church is people. And church is a bunch of people, if you don't know this already, who are different and broken and hurting and sinful and everything in between. But when those people come together, there is one similarity about every one of us that trumps and far exceeds every one of those differences, namely that we're all in need of the grace of our God. And that's the similarity that brings the church together. So listen, we don't want you to be an outlier. We don't want you to be anonymous. We want you to be a part of this community. So here's what that may look like. In 2024, maybe that looks like you coming 15 minutes early or 30, staying 15 minutes late, just lingering around a cup of coffee, staying out in the foyer, getting to know somebody, actually having a conversation. For all of you introverts in the room, I get it. I am so introverted. I can't stand that. But y'all, it's actually a really unique way to get to know somebody. Maybe it looks like signing up for one of our serve teams. It's a great opportunity to get plugged in. Maybe it looks like for signing up for one of our small groups, which we call grow groups that'll be launching in February. Point is, a way for you to get involved in community is a way to facilitate a deeper love for Jesus. Okay? The second unique thing that we want to do as a church is we want to open the Bible. Y'all, the Bible is fulfilled in Christ. The Bible points to Christ. So if you're new with us, what you can expect is that every Sunday we're going to open up this book and we're going to slowly and methodically preach our way through it. And today, we're going to begin doing that in the book of Philippians. My plan is for us to take 18 weeks, 18 weeks to walk through four short chapters. And the reason I want us to take this much time is because it is power-packed with encouragement for us, y'all. Power packed with encouragement. In fact, the tone and the tenor of the book of Philippians is one of encouragement. It just oozes warmth and oozes affection. I don't know if the rules that apply to us as parents are the same rules that apply to church planters. Like, right, as, as parents, you can't have favorite children. You can't do it. You can't do it. It's, it's, it's not illegal. But Paul, I'm convinced, had a favorite church. And I believe that his favorite church was the church in Philippi, the church of Philippians. You see, in most of Paul's letters, he addresses specific issues or specific sin struggles that negatively impact the health and the maturity of a church. Right? For example, when he writes to the church in Corinth or the letters to Corinthians, they're overwhelmed with immorality and idolatry. And he actually writes to them, when I visit you, do you need me to bring a rod, a spanking spoon? Like, do you need discipline when I come to see you? To the church in Galatia, he says, who has bewitched you? How is it that you have so quickly left the true gospel and begun to follow a different gospel? He says, do you need correction? When I come back to you, do I need to correct you? 
But you don't find that in Philippians. When he writes to Philippians, this is what he says. Philippians chapter 1, verse 3. He says, I thank my God in all of my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for, for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. The tone and the tenor of this letter, it's one of encouragement. It's one of warm affection. It's one of love. It's one of joy. In fact, that concept of joy appears 16 times in the book of Philippians. When Paul thinks about the Philippian church, he's filled with joy. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 1, he says this, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love, whom I long for, my joy and my crown. He actually calls the church his joy. Some have even called Philippians the epistle of joy, the letter of joy, asserting that joy is the central theme or the primary theme of the book of Philippians. But I don't think that's quite true. Joy may, may show up 16 times in the book of Philippians, but it's actually the source of joy that dominates this book. Joy shows up 16 times. It's the source of joy that dominates it. And what we're going to see over the next 18 weeks that that source is none other than Jesus Christ. Paul wants the Philippians to know that he's overwhelmed with joy, first and foremost, because he is overwhelmed with Jesus Christ. And church, that's my prayer for you over the next 18 weeks that your life would be characterized by a deep-seated confidence, that your life would be characterized by a wellspring of joy because your life is characterized by a deep-seated affection for Jesus Christ. Because when you get closer to Jesus, the source of all joy, then you too will experience joy much like the Philippians did. This is why we've entitled our series, as you see on the graphic, That I May Gain Christ. Our prayer for you for the next 18 weeks is that you would gain a deeper affection for Christ. But why is this book relevant for us today? Oh my goodness, it is. The reason this book is so relevant for us is, is, is so deep, but let me just kind of put my cards on the table personally. So many of you have known our background and our story, so I'm not going to belabor this, but, but let me pull back the veil on why I believe Annie and I are here in the beautiful city of Richmond Hill, Georgia. Since 2009, my burning passion has been cross-cultural missions among unreached peoples. And what that means is meeting people who have never even heard the name of Jesus and introducing them to the gospel of Christ for the very first time. To live cross-culturally to, to, to the point where people who are as proverbially dead as a doornail spiritually get to meet the resurrected king for the first time and come to life in him. From 2009, that's been my passion. And you know, from 2012 to 2020, we lived that passion. Lived as cross-cultural missionaries, lived among unreached peoples, loved living among unreached peoples. And then in 2019, we were abruptly kicked out of the country of origin, finding ourselves back in America. But our passion never waxed or waned for us. We, we knew God's going to open up another door. He's going to tell us which country to go to. We're in. This is our passion. But over the course of 2020 and 2021, it didn't happen. In fact, to our utter shock and our utter surprise, I, I think God began to open my eyes to a totally different demographic of people. A group of people who had heard the name of Jesus, but almost had heard it so much it became white noise. A, a group of people who lived and pretended and acted like they were live, full of passion, full of vivaciousness, but in reality just as dead as the people we used to work among. And I'm going to Use my opinion, which I don't like preaching my opinions, but in my opinion, my personal belief, the year 2020 and the year 2021 revealed the American church for, for what it believed. That's my opinion. But it revealed for what it believed. Because our, our beliefs drive our behaviors, right? You want to know what somebody believes, you look at their actions. 
Our beliefs drive our behaviors. And I believe that the years, the turmoil of 2020 and 2021 revealed the beliefs of American Christianity. I'm speaking generalizations. Of course, there's outliers. Of course, there's specificity there. But generally speaking, here's what I think was revealed about the American church, about American Christianity. Namely, that self-indulgence, comfort, and security are of greater gain than the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think that's what our actions reveal. I think that's what what our behaviors have revealed about our beliefs, that self-indulgence, comfort, and security are of greater gain than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now listen, it takes discernment to see that, because American Christianity would confess that, that our greatest gain is Jesus, right? Our confession is that he is worth everything that we have, but our actions, do they not contradict that confession? The way that we live our life, does it not contradict what we really believe? And this is why I believe Philippians is so relevant for us. Because in the book of Philippians, Paul's going to come and say, no, y'all, no, you've got it wrong. Listen, it is not the gains of this world that leads to your fullness, that leads to your meaning, that leads to your life, that leads to your joy. No, in fact, what he's going to say in chapter 1 is going to say your gains are not found in your security at all. Because what we're going to see in the book of Philippians is that Paul is facing imminent death when he writes this letter facing death, and yet he's going to write in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, to me, to live is for Christ. But he's going to say, but to die, that's my gain. He's going to say, your gain is not found in security in this world because his gain is actually found in death because his gain is found in Christ. Paul's going to say, your gains are not found in your safety because he's going to tell the Philippians in chapter 1 that their gain is actually going to be found in the granting of their suffering. What? Did you hear that? We think that God just wants us to be happy, that the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. How many times have we heard this in American Christianity? But Paul's going, actually, your greatest gain is going to be found in the granting of your suffering. Safest place to be in the center of God's will. How'd that work out for Jesus? How about any of the apostles? Any of the disciples? There is a gain found in suffering that Paul's going to let us in on. He's going to say your gains are not found in self-indulgence. In fact, he's going to tell the church in Philippi that people are going to preach it. People are going to come to you. They're going to teach you. They're going to preach to you that your greatest gain is going to be found in in serving yourself and making yourself famous in your own self-indulgence. They're going to tell you to put your mind on earthly things and to seek earthly things. But Paul's going to say, no, your greatest gain in Philippians chapter 3 is found in your citizenship, not in this earth, but in heaven. That's where our greatest gain is found. In chapter 4, he's going to say that your gains are not found in your, your comforts. Your gains are not found in your possessions. In fact, he's going to say, listen, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. He's going to say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Did you know that that verse is not about how much you can deadlift? Isn't that incredible? It's actually about when we get near to Jesus, we have all that we need, y'all. We have all that we need. What Philippians is going to show us is that when we truly gain Christ, you will be able to count all that this world has to offer as rubbish. You will be able to suffer the loss of all things in this world because you will have finally found that Christ is of infinite value. And that's my prayer for you. Over the next 18 weeks that we would find the overwhelming joy and the infinite gain of Jesus Christ. But I'm going to take the next 20 minutes to just read and and kind of set up the text from the first two verses, okay? We're going to give a little bit of background, a little bit of context so we can understand um, where this book fits, what the main message is, and hopefully uh, set us up well for the next 18 weeks. So, Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. The story of, of Philippians, or the church in Philippi, begins a, a little less than 2,000 years ago in the year 51 AD. All right, let me tell you what's happening in 51 AD. Paul, the writer of this letter, who we all know his background, right? was a fervent persecutor of the church, hated Jesus, hated the church, but he had one singular encounter with the risen Lord, and it totally changed his life forever. So instead of killing Christians, he becomes the world's greatest missionary and apostle and church planter. And in 51 AD, Paul and his little crack team of church planters had moved to the city of Jerusalem where they were a part of the Jerusalem Council. That's in Acts chapter 15. They meet with other church leaders to make sure that they're preaching the right gospel. In the Jerusalem Council, it took place in 51 AD, decided that the forgiveness of sins and the salvation and the eternal life found in Jesus Christ is available for all people. That the gospel wasn't just for Jews, the gospel is also for Gentiles, for people like me and for people like you. That's what they decided in 51 AD in Acts chapter 15. So Paul hears, oh, the gospel's freely open for all people, huh? let's go. So in Acts chapter 16, his little crack team, Paul, Silas, Dr. Luke, who wrote Luke and the book of Acts, and then his young protege, Timothy, began to move through all of the cities that they had planted churches in in their first missionary journey. They're revisiting all of these churches because they want to strengthen those churches and encourage those churches. And Paul's deepest passion was to continue to push deeper into the continent of Asia because all the churches he had planted had been in the continent of Asia, specifically modern-day Turkey. So we see in Acts chapter 16 that he wants to move north from modern-day Turkey into the region of Bithynia. I'm going to put it on a map for you so that you can see what I'm talking about, okay? So he's in the Asia, modern-day Turkey. He wants to move into that northern region of Bithynia. But in Acts chapter 16, verse 7, it says, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them. I have so many questions, okay? But it doesn't answer for us. Obviously, Paul and his team knew Jesus does not want us moving north into Bithynia. So that night, Paul goes to sleep, he has a dream, and in this dream, a man from Macedonia appears and says, come to Macedonia to help us. Macedonia is over that little Aegean Sea, and you can see Macedonia, and it's in the continent of Europe. So Paul wakes up the next morning in Acts chapter 16, verse 10, and says, Paul had seen the vision and immediately sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So Holy Spirit's directing where the gospel is going to go. So they leave Asia, sail across the Aegean Sea to Europe. They land in this port city of Neapolis, and they go, well, let's go to the, the leading city of this region. What is the biggest, most important uh, city of this region? The city of Philippi. Philippi is right there in Macedonia. And Philippi was a Roman colony. They were populated by Roman citizens. They were governed by Roman law. They spoke Latin as the Roman language. They adopted Roman dress. In fact, one historian says that apart from Rome itself, Philippi was the most Roman city that Paul had visited. But when they get to Philippi, Paul, and, and as was his custom, sought to preach the gospel first to who? The Jews. It was his custom that when he'd get into a city, he would find a Jewish synagogue and he would preach the gospel to the Jews. But in Philippi, there was no synagogue. In fact, Jewish law said that you needed a quorum of 10 Jewish men to be able to have a synagogue in a particular city. So apparently in Philippi, there were, weren't many Jews. And not, not enough Jewish men to have a synagogue. So instead of finding a synagogue, he goes down to a riverbank. And this is so interesting. Jews, when there's no synagogue, would worship next to a riverbank. This is a practice they had in the time of the exile. 
when they were kicked out of Jerusalem, when they were kicked out of Israel, they, they would meet at the riverbank, which would have their ablutions and their ritual washings. So they still carried on this tradition. So in Philippi, Paul goes, they're not a synagogue. Maybe we'll go down to the river and find some worshipers there. And you know what he stumbled on down at the river? A Jen Wilkin Bible study. I'm just kidding. A Bible study of, of a bunch of women. And there's a bunch of women meeting this Bible study, and Paul begins to share the gospel, and one woman, one powerful businesswoman by the name of Lydia responds to Paul's preaching and becomes the first convert on the continent of Europe. The man from Macedonia in the dream was actually a woman from Macedonia by the name of Lydia. Powerful businesswoman, wealthy businesswoman. And as the gospel opened up Lydia's heart, Lydia began to open up her home. She invited Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke into her home, and she began to host. Well, the next day, this is Acts chapter 16. You can go back and read it, okay? The next day, Paul and Silas want to go back to the riverbank to get some more converts. And as they're walking there, there's this young slave girl following Paul who's demon-possessed. She has a spirit of divination, and she makes her owners tons of money because she can tell people's fortunes. And this lady is pestering Paul and annoying Paul, and he just turns around in a holy matter and casts that demon out of her. She becomes the second convert on the continent of Europe. But her owners hated that. They just lost their source of profit. They just lost their ability to make some money off of her gifting. So what do they do? They take Paul, they take Silas, and they beat him. They flog him, and they throw him into the prisons in the city of Philippi. Do you know what you find in Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas doing in prison? Worshiping, singing. It, it, it's unbelievable. You see, Paul's gain, church, was not in his own self-indulgence. It wasn't in his own security. It wasn't in his own comfort. It wasn't in his own safety. He is singing inside this church because he was consumed with Jesus Christ. Tertullian, an early church father, says that the legs feel nothing in the stocks when your heart is in heaven. Isn't that a beautiful piece of poetry? The legs feel nothing in the stocks when your heart is in heaven. So Paul and Silas are singing. They're worshiping. They're giving praise to the Lord for being beaten for his name. And as they sing in Acts chapter 16, an earthquake begins to shake. The prison doors miraculously open. And the Philippian jailer realizes, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. All the prisoners have escaped, which means utter death for him. So he's about to commit suicide when Paul says, don't do it. We're all here. We haven't gone anywhere. And the Philippian jailer says, what must I do to be saved? How can I have the gain that you have? I want what you have. So Paul and Silas go to the Philippian jailer's home. And his, he and his whole household believe and are baptized that very night. The third family of converts on the continent of Europe. Well, the next day, uh, the Philippian authorities tell Paul and Silas, get out of here. We don't want any more to do with you. We want you all out of our city. So they go back to Lydia's house right before they leave town. And they want to meet with the church. And right there in 51 AD, the church of Philippi was born. Did you hear it was consisted of? A wealthy businesswoman, a demoniac slave girl, and a Philippian jailer whose life was spent torturing others. You know what you see in the church there at Philippi in 51 AD? You see a microcosm of every single church. Any church. Every church. That's what church is, is formed of. A bunch of people who couldn't be more different, different ages, different socioeconomic statuses, different sin paths, but people who share one thing in common. They had gained Christ. And that one similarity, church, it trumps every other distinctive. So in Lydia's home, in 51 AD, the birth of the Philippian church took place. So I'd encourage you, go back and read Acts chapter 16 this week so you can get that, that history in there for you. All right, so flash forward 10 years. Paul's been arrested again. 
kind of a habit with him. This time, though, in the city of Jerusalem. But he knows I'm not going to find any justice in Jerusalem. Everybody's biased against me, so he appeals to the Supreme Court. He appeals to Caesar as a Roman citizen. So they transport him to the city of Rome, and he's sitting in a Roman prison awaiting his verdict of whether he is going to live or whether he is going to die. But while he's in prison, he's still working, and he pens four letters. He writes four letters while he's in prison in Rome. These are called the prison epistles. First, you have Ephesians. Then you have Colossians. Then you have one called Philemon. Then you have the latest one called Philippians. Paul writes this letter from the inner prison of Rome, awaiting a verdict of life or death. He wrote it in 61 AD. And although fettered in Rome, he had not been forgotten in Philippi. Listen to this. The church in Lydia's home had grown, and it had remembered Paul. And they were worried about Paul, and they were concerned for Paul. So they they volunteer, they draw straws on who's going to go to Rome to encourage Paul, to support Paul, and one man by the name of Epaphroditus. All you pregnant ladies with sons, Epaphroditus, recommended, okay? One church member by the name of Epaphroditus goes to Rome to visit him in prison, to encourage him and to provide some of his temporal needs. And in Philippians chapter 4, verse 14, Paul says to the Philippians, it was so kind of you to share with me in my troubles. The Philippians were worried about Paul. But Paul sends a letter back in the hands of Epaphroditus, saying, no, 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 don't be worried about me. He says, I'm worried about you. In fact, I'm worried that you've seen all that has happened to me, and somehow you've concluded that I have lost. But he tells the Philippians, I want you to know that I've actually gained. As I sit here in prison and I await a verdict of life or death, I have gained. And he writes to the Philippians church to remind them of their gain in Christ. And the first thing he writes as he introduces the letter in verse 1 is Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. First thing he wanted to remind the Philippians of is, I'm here, I'm in prison, I'm beaten, I may die because I am a servant of Jesus Christ. I think that's the first thing he'd want us to be reminded of too, that we're servants. That word servant is, is the Greek word doulos, it's bondservant, it's the word of a slave. It it describes someone who is so joy-filled at the service of their master that they voluntarily submit themselves to their master for the rest of their lives, saying, I just want to be where you are. I want to do what you tell me to do. And Paul says, I am a servant. And don't miss this, y'all. He is writing as a literal slave to Caesar. And he goes, no, no, no. I'm a slave to Jesus Christ. I'm a servant to Christ. Church, we're so tempted in American Christianity to buy into that gospel of self-indulgence and comfort and security and safety. We're so tempted to think that our gain is actually found in being served, that our gain is actually found in serving ourselves or being served by others. But in reality, Paul's going to show us in Philippians that your greatest gain is going to come from serving Christ, of being a servant. I think this is a really good word for us today. This is where I'm going to tie in our Serve Sunday. Uh, We're 17 months old, I think, as a church. I try to remind us all the time we got to act our age. Just because we've grown, if people think we've got it together, y'all, we're just toddling around. We're figuring this thing out, okay? But being a 17-month-old church, I, I, I want to talk to some of you. Some of you have been here since the beginning, or some of you have been a part of this church since uh, 2022. And if that's you, thank you for what you've done. Thank you for the service that you provided. You, you've woken up early. We've relied on you. You've done so much for the life of this church. But it would be so easy 
now that the honeymoon is over, for you to go, good, somebody else's turn now. I'm going to kick my feet up. No need for me to serve anymore. Let somebody else take the reins. I don't need to do this. If your desire has begun to fade to serve, my prayer for you is that Philippians would stir your affection for Christ and that you would be reminded that you're not a servant of this church, you're a servant of Jesus Christ. But for some of you, you're new or newer. And by God's grace and your own insanity, you've chosen to call this local church your home. I don't get it. Glad you're here. But I believe that Paul would be saying to us that your greatest gain is going to be serving him also. Uh, so many people have such a warped view of the church. I'm not going to get on a soapbox. You'll hear it a lot. If you come here, you'll hear it a lot. But, but we view church as a place that should serve us. I, I don't know how this happened. We, we view church as a place where, well, I get something out of it, a place that should meet my personal preferences or a place that makes me feel fill in the blank. And church, let me just tell you, if that's your view, that, that's your loss. That's a loss for you if that's the way that you view church. The goal of a church member or an attender isn't to primarily consume. I pray that you do get something out of it. I pray that you do encounter the Lord. I pray that it, it stirs your affections. You feel deep love for Jesus while you're in church. But the primary role of a church member or a church attender is to serve God. The primary role of a Christian is to serve God to make him famous, to lift him up, to put him forward, to serve him. We are so tempted to live and work and play solely considering how it makes us feel, how it, how it pushes ourselves forward. But listen, serving, serving is not just something we need you to do as a church. We do. But serving is, is, a, is a way to resist a cultural age and temptation to make yourself God. We, we do everything six days a week to try to put ourselves forward. That's the messaging you get all throughout the week. We get one opportunity to say, I'm going to resist that temptation to self-indulge, and I'm going to expend myself for the benefit of others. I'm going to resist that temptation. I'm going to become a servant. It's actually a way for us to fight, to fight that temptation. We serve Him in our careers, in our home. I, I, our applications are not just to the four walls here one day a week, right? I hope you don't hear me saying that, that you're, if you check it off, if you sign up for CBC Kids, you're good. You're a servant of Jesus. That is not what I'm saying. He is master and Lord of every area of your life, every area. You serve him in your careers. You serve him in your homes. You serve him while coaching rec sports. I hope I'll be out there this spring, okay? You, you serve him in every area of your life and everything that you do. He is worthy of it all. He is our master. He is our Lord. Our greatest gain, church, all I'm trying to say, I'm going to land this plane, is found in Christ. And that's what we're going to see in Philippians. And the first thing that Paul wants us to be reminded of is that his identity is one of a servant. It's one of a servant. And Coleman said it earlier, that's the identity that we're praying for for our church is one of a servant. So may this be the year that you find your gain in serving Jesus Christ. So let me take three minutes and write about the audience. First, we have the, the, the author, Paul and Timothy. Second, we have the audience. End of verse 1. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. First thing he says is to all the saints. All right, the concept of saints is so confusing for us these days, okay? It is not, a saint is not an iconoclast image of somebody who did a lot of really good things while they were alive, and then somehow somebody gets to decide that they can cash all those good deeds in, and lo and behold, you get painted on stained glass. That's not what a saint is biblically. Biblically, a saint is someone who is consecrated, 
holy and set apart by God. The Bible uses the word saints to refer to the church, to the body of Christ, to individual Christians. And Christians, according to the Bible, are holy and sacred and set apart unto the Lord. But listen to this, not because of any of your merit or your works or your personal piety. You did nothing to earn your sainthood. Your ability to be a saint is only derivative of your nearness to Jesus Christ. If you have gained Jesus Christ, the Bible would call you a saint. You are now holy in Him. You are forgiven in Him. You are righteous in Him. You are a saint because of Jesus. And Paul is writing to all of the saints, to all of the Christians in a local church in the city of Philippi. And I say local. Like, emphasize local church because he says, with the overseers and the deacons, that word overseers is often translated as elders. And what that does is it indicates a formalized, structured local church where you have elders who are eldering, leading, and governing, and you have deacons who are formalized and recognized who are serving. Church, I believe that the local church is the hope of the world. And if you, ex- if you want to experience gain this year, then I think you should connect in a community of a local church. It doesn't have to be this one but of a local church. For some of you, my prayer for you this year is that hopping from church to church would finally come to an end. And that you would realize, this is 2020 and 2021, that an online experience can never substitute for the real thing of a local church. Not because any church is perfect, but actually, the reason I want you to connect to a local church is because it's, it's not. And if you connect to a local church, did you know what you just made that local church? Imperfect, Okay. But the reason I want you, just follow this thought, to connect to any local church, a local church that preaches the gospel and allows the Bible to lead. Okay, that's my caveat. I want you to connect to a local church because when the people of a church let you down, hurt you, fail you, that obviously demonstrates that a church is not perfect. You know what that reveals? That that church is in need of the great grace of their God. And when you connect to a local church who is in need of the great grace of their God, then what you have is a God who will heal you. You will have a God that will pick you back up when they, when they let you down. And you'll have a God that will teach you how to forgive, teach you how to walk out this thing called faith. You keep running from church to church thinking that you're going to find a perfect one. You keep missing out on opportunities to become more like Jesus Christ. And that's the goal. Connect to a community that you can become like Jesus Christ. The local church, the hope of the world. My prayer is that you would connect to one because that's who Paul's writing to. Everything that's available in the book of Philippians is not just available to the individual Christian. I'm about to go soapbox. We read it that way, don't we? Don't we read the scriptures? What does this say to me? Do you know how the church in Philippi would have read this? One person who could read would stand up in front of everybody and address the entire church. It was a communal event. It was a a collective event. And in this book, y'all, we're going to see this. Paul says, hey, and those two women, and calls them out by name and says, they need to start getting along better. What if we did that? We would make space in this church. But I want you to see that the church was intended to be that communal, that we're committed to one another, that we're here together, that we're in this thing together. That's what a local church is. I will stop talking. That's all the time I have for us today. I really do look forward to reading and praying and preaching this incredible book over the next 18 weeks. So if you will, why don't you stand up with me? I'm going to pray for us, and then our team's going to come back up and lead us through a song of response. I'm actually going to pray straight from the book of Philippians. Father, there's so much encouragement in Christ. There is so much comfort from your love. 
There's so much that we get to participate in by your spirit. And because we have gained so much from you, I pray that we would be in full accord, that this local church would be of one mind, that each saint here would do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility we would count one another more significant than ourselves, that we wouldn't be a church that looks only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. In essence, we pray from Philippians chapter 2 that we would be like Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, humbling himself to the point of death, even a criminal's death on the cross. Father, my heart and prayer for our church this year is that we would follow you, that we'd be overwhelmed by you, that we'd be consumed by you, and that would be evidence in our obedience to you, evidence in our service of one another, our service of this community, our service of America, our service of this world, all in your name. May you be famous. May you be lifted up. May you be known by how we love one another and serve one another. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.